introducing our speakers. I'm going to start with Dr. Williams. Uh, Michael Williams, MD. He's director of the UVA Center for Health and Policy. With more than 20 years experience in healthcare delivery and systems design, and he's, he's very passionate about healthcare equity issues. Dr. Williams joined UVA in 2012 as an associate professor of surgery and director of emergency general surgery. He has also served as director of the UVA Summer uh, Medical and Dental Education Program, which was established by a major grant from the Robert uh, Wood Johnson Foundation. This program aims to help underrepresented minority students become more competitive candidates for medical school. Dr. Williams is a graduate of Brown University, where he studied biology. He earned his MD uh, from the University of Virginia. Go who's. Okay. Dana Bowen, Bowen uh, Matthew. Uh, she's a leader in public health who focuses on racial disparities in healthcare. She joined the University of Virginia faculty in 2017. Her most recent book is Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. Ms. Matthew joined, uh, I'm sorry, Ms. Matthew uh, graduated with an AB in economics from Harvard Radcliffe and she obtained a JD from the University of Virginia. You see the theme here, to who's? <laughs> While studying at UVA, Ms. Matthews served as the editor of Virginia Law Review. She won the law school's William Minor Lau Moot uh, Court Competition, and she taught, as, she taught as a Hardy Dillard William Fellow. Following graduation, Ms. Matthews clerked for Justice John Charles Thomas. In 2018, Ms. Matthews joined, uh, received her PhD in Health and Behavioral Sciences from the University of Colorado at Denver. Please help me welcome the double who's that are in the room, <laughs> Dr. William, Dr. Williams and Dana Matthews. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to try this. Um, can you hear me first? I tend to pace, so bear with me. Um, all right, yeah, we'll get that up. Okay, great. So Dana and I have known each other. We, we learned at Bodo's. Anybody been to Bodo's? All right, good. Uh, is it 30 years? It's some number of, large number of years when I was a student and she was, I think, a recent graduate of our various uh, UVA uh, university experiences. Uh, Dana's husband is, is also a good friend of mine and was my a mentor when I was a medical student on the cardiac surgery rotation way back in the dark ages. So we, we go back a long, long way. Um, and I've learned in 30 plus years of knowing Dana, albeit intermittently, never follow her. Right? <laughs> never go behind Dana. So I was psyched today when I got to go first in our, in our joint conversation about health equity and social determinants of health. And, and I, I was really psyched that you're here because Katie Kirk's a pretty big draw. So thank you all uh, in advance for, for not being with Katie Kirk and, and Larry Sabato today, but being with us. Um, as we begin this conversation about social determinants of health and health equity or health inequity, I guess the first question is, does everyone know what a social determinant of health is? Is that a, a common parlance in the room? If not, I'll give you a, a, just a crash course. Dana's probably got more detail about it than I do, but essentially it's the, it's the real life things that determine your health outcomes. When I was in school here in the dark ages, 
I was taught that your biology and your physiology and how much you smoke and drank and increasingly figured out how much you weighed, all those things is what determined if you were going to live a healthy life or a long life or a combination of the two. Well, it turns out that a really enormous and growing body of evidence says those things are important, certainly. If you have diabetes, you have to take care of your diabetes. But the social factors of your life, where you live, are you safe where you live? Do you have enough food? Do you have good enough food? Do you have a job? Right? Steady income is important. In our country, the correlate is do you have health insurance or access to health insurance? All of those things, again, your real life, the stuff that happens between visits to people like me in the doctor's office or, God forbid, in the emergency department um, or even worse, in, the, in my OR, all those things are the things that actually drive your health outcomes. And it may be as much as 80% of your health outcomes. So all the rest of that stuff that I do in my days, nights, and weekends and holidays job is squished into that 20% that's left. So the important things are happening well outside of the sight of any doctor, nurse, therapist, you name it, pharmacist. The social factors are the things that drive what happens to all of us in terms of our lifespan and our health and wellness. It's a little bit sobering thought. Because our country, our health system, and I think most of you are probably experienced at some level, either having a child in the healthcare system or, God forbid, being in the emergency room at any point, you know that it's all about the white coats and the prescriptions and the medications and the surgeries. We are very focused on the treatment aspect of, of healthcare in this country. And we do it extraordinarily well. It's expensive. I think you probably are all aware of that, too. It's crazy expensive. But we do it very, very well. So why don't we have better health outcomes per capita? Why are our data as a country so far behind countries we like to emulate in terms of health outcomes for the general population and individuals? Most of the Western world, almost all of Europe, Cuba, it turns out, in some cases, the Dominican Republic, we have worse health outcomes on many measures than all those countries I just named and many more, despite outspending them by orders of magnitude in some cases. Why is that? Well, it's the social determinants of health. So our, our charge from Althea was to talk about how do we fix that? How do we overcome these social determinants of health? And I think for my part of our joint conversation, I'm here to tell you, and it's not a pleasant set of conversations we're going to have, but it isn't an accident. These things are things that societies actually cause to happen to their, their people. In France, if you have a child and you're the mother, you get six months off. In fact, I don't think you're allowed to work in the six months you have off. You also get a nanny. And your job is guaranteed when you get back at the same pay rate. You can't lose any, any benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But you know who pays for that is the tax dollars. It's a very socially subsidized social welfare structure that's expensive on the tax end. But on the back end, when you're the mother or the, the father of a, of, a, of a spouse who's just had a child, it actually makes life much, much easier. You have help that's built in because the society says that it's better for us if we're French to have that help baked into early motherhood than to have expensive devices and technologies like lots of robots doing surgery like my colleagues use. And again, I'm a surgeon, so I can say that about surgeons and not get in too much trouble. Cardiac surgeon is a different story, but I won't go into that. <laughs> but that's what the French decided to do as a society. And as a result, in part, and I want an example, the French have better health outcomes than we do, almost across the board. And the French can eat really well, excellent rich foods, wine, every meal. I love eating in France. Why are their health outcomes better? Well, I would tell, here to tell you that it's because they've made different societal choices about what they invest in. 
So you've heard, you may have heard the statistics about how much we invest in healthcare spending on the, on the, again, on the care end, the delivery end of the equation, and how much we don't spend on the social infrastructure pieces of access to healthy foods, walking spaces in urban environments, public safety, another major concern that we don't do a good job of in this country compared to others. But if you add up how much the Europeans, and I'll use the Europeans as a blanket example, how much they spend on both social welfare programs, like the ones I mentioned, and healthcare, and how much we spend on healthcare and social programs, it's about the same amount of money. Right? So if you add all those two things up, we're actually not all that different from the developed world and the Western world that we like to emulate and compare ourselves to. So what's the difference? The societal underpinnings are a little bit different in the developed world. All right? And I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, that this is no accident. This is not a mistake that things just spun out of control and all of a sudden bad, bad things began to happen for health outcomes. This is a hundreds-year-old story, and it's unpleasant to hear. I hope to convince you of some of that, and then I hope to t- tell you about what's happening right here in, in Charlottesville, right, at UVA Hospital, our, our, our patients, our data. Next slide. So it's pop quiz. What is this a map of? And the good news is there are lots of the same map besides, so it isn't the U.S. You don't get to say the U.S. That's, that's too easy. What am I showing you a map of here? That's an excellent answer. It is probably more accurate than I intended it to be. Um, but that's actually not, not the answer. The Confederate, sorry again? The Confederate States, right? So these are the Confederate States. Keep that in your mind. It won't be hard to remember, but keep that in your mind. All right, so these are the states who, de- next time, who declared themselves the Confederate States of America in, in the, at the beginning of the Civil War. All right, so remember that map. Oh, back one. Back two. Other way. One more. There you go. Good. Perfect. <clears throat> so you've, you have that map in your minds. Now, one slide. One slide only, please. Yes. What is this a map of? It's not the same map, isn't the Confederate States? Uh, close. Close. So look, look here. It's actually pretty scary. Dana, would you be so kind? Educational segregation in the U.S. prior to Brown v. Board. <coughs> you getting the theme? So the same states that required segregation at the educational level are the same states that declared for the Confederacy not too long beforehand. And, and one of the things that's important that we talk about is how young America is. Right? There are many, many buildings in Europe, many, many buildings in China that are hundreds of years older than our entire country. So really no time has passed for us as a civilization in this country. So these are the states that required segregation before the Supreme Court said thou shalt not do that. Unfortunately, the same states remain pretty segregated today. Um, albeit through a different set of laws and a different set of processes and different set of procedures. But these are all things that are decided at the societal level. Okay. Notice I haven't said the first thing about healthcare yet. Not the first thing. 
But 200, 300 years in our history, this map doesn't change. Next slide, please. State Medicaid expansion map. So this is as of December of last year. All right, so just after the midterms, and I'll explain some of the hash mark signs in a second. So let's see which states not adopting expansion of Medicaid. Oh, look, a lot of the same states. So the hash marks are the midterm elections had just happened in these three states, and the, the population overrode a governor, essentially, and said, through referenda, there shall be Medicaid expansion. Utah, Idaho, Nebraska. Maine, another good example, after many, many tilts of the windmill, they finally overturned that situation in Maine. <clears throat> but these states are holding strong. Now, we were on that list until a couple years ago here in Virginia. I don't know how many of you still live in the Commonwealth, but that was us two maps ago. This data is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Now we're talking health care. Okay, we're talking health care. Same states. Someone said the heart attack belt, right? Not wrong. Diabetes belt, not wrong. Some of the worst health outcomes per capita, and frankly, race independent, in this hemisphere, forget just the US. All those outcomes are worst in these states. Huh. Hard to argue with that. Next slide, please. All right. So even in the states that, that thank goodness, expanded Medicaid, what's happening on this map? I, I, I told you. Front there is a little cheat sheet. So making Medicaid hard to get, if you were forced <laughs> up here, if you were forced to expand Medicaid by the power of the people, the power of the ballot box, now you begin to see another similar pattern of some of the Confederate states. Um, some have yet to come forward with their legislation, but it, I'll show you a slide in a second, not yet, <laughs> um, that gets to that in more detail. But there's a recurring theme here again. All right, States with lots so of great outcomes are trying to put barriers between Medicaid access and those who are qualified for Medicaid under the expansion of Medicaid that was codified in the Affordable Care Act um, as part of the recovery of our country in a whole set of ways. What's in that box? That box? This is as of March of this year. CMS had approved Ohio's Medicaid work requirements. So that's why Ohio was circled there. Um, so literally, this is sort of hot off the presses stuff um, that's happening right now. Others are, legislation is still being considered in lots of these states, mostly <laughs> down here. Um, Texas just never expanded Medicaid and has some of the most restrictive access to publicly subsidized health care in the country. Um, it's actually pretty remarkable. Another little detail. Tw 20 weeks is probably getting to be on the cutting edge of these abortion bans that are now popping up right and left around the country. But you'll notice another recurring theme. Same Confederate states, within a couple of exceptions, but the same Confederate states. These are not accidents. All right, These are policy decisions that are being made by the people who are in power, through the elect power of the electorate, in all these states. Pennsylvania makes different choices. 
as a state. Maryland makes different choices as a state. California makes very different choices as a state. Oregon, Washington, very different choices in the states. You notice they've not been on, none of those states I mentioned have been on any of those maps that I showed you. Different policy decisions. So access to abortion is a health care right. Whatever your religious beliefs may be, it's a health care question. Public health question first and foremost. People die during pregnancy that need to be terminated. And it's a terrible thing, but it's true. And so not having access to that is pretty bad for you. Where do you think the worst infant mortality rates in America are? Someone, I think, already stole my phone. Yeah. Right there. Abortion ban, Medicaid restrictions, not expanding Medicaid. It's probably the worst trifecta you can think of if you're a low-income pregnant woman who needs to have abortion to not die. And yet, the policymakers in Alabama have seen fit to go a different direction. So, all of these things, only recently in my talk, are actually tied at all to actually healthcare delivery, right? We're not really talking about the delivery of services, but they are all related to the social determinants of health, right? If you have a hard time getting a job, which is more common here than here, it's hard to afford medication. You can either oftentimes choose between eating or your medication for the month. Can't often choose both. If you are working two to three day jobs, none of them will, are, are required and or will offer you insurance because it turns out for employers, insurance is a crazy expensive proposition, right? That's another problem, a whole set of conversations to be had. But for first is our conversation today, I'm just talking about the ability to have insurance through your employer, which is what most of us do in this country. Again, by policy more than by, by, by choice. But if it's a two to three job day, none of those jobs have time off built in. So if you miss work at all, you're gone because there's someone like you who can do whatever it is you're doing. It's generally speaking not super highly skilled or technical work. <clears throat> Excuse me. None of them have insurance as a benefit. The benefit is you get paid for the day's work on the day you work. Right? And the gig economy is the current language for young people who are working in the gig economy space where you work kind of as an independent contractor in one-offs, and that's your career. And I am glad that it works. It scares me as a father of three. That's it's not my gig. Um, but if that's your situation, you probably need Medicaid because there's going to be times, and there always are times, when you're going to be unemployed. Right? Those gigs are going to run out, and you're going to be between gig jobs. And so Medicaid is that gap filler, unless it's not, right? unless you're living down here. So who do we think lives disproportionately in poverty down here as a demographic group? People of color, right? People of color who have the worst health outcomes down here as a group as well. And so the beauty of things like Medicaid and, frankly, Medicare is the leveler. Right? If you have access to public insurance, to a social service, a lot of those other things can be taken care of in a different way because you can afford medications and food. Right? I don't mean to say that people don't have to make choices that are sometimes difficult for them and have to choose things like not smoking and eating over pills, right? They have to choose those things. There's no question there is a personal accountability piece of this as well. But our society as a whole has not bought into the notion that we, unlike the French or the Swedes or the Norwegians, 
are responsible for each other in a way that says that our, our infrastructure needs to be fundamentally structured differently than it currently is. And it has real outcome results that are bad for our citizens, bad for the people of Virginia, and bad for people who come to UVA Hospital. Next slide. So these are data from UVA patients, which may include some of you. Right? These are patients who are ambulatory patients, and I'll go through this in a second. This is some work that we did in my lab um, in the last year or so. And we asked people questions about, did you have enough money for food every month of last year? Did you have enough money to pay your utility bills every month of last year? Did you ever have a hard time getting to the doctor's office because you couldn't get transportation to the doctor's office? We asked them six different questions on six different domains. Do you feel safe at home emotionally? Do you feel safe at home physically? Right? Different things. And so we asked these questions, and the results have kept me up nights, to be honest. So I'm just going to go through. If you're food insecure, meaning if you answered affirmatively in the, to the survey that in the last six, uh, 12 months you had a hard time getting enough food all the time, you have a 62% increased risk of <coughs> being readmitted if you were hospitalized during that same, same time period compared to those who were not food insecure risk of being readmitted to the hospital. So if you were admitted to the hospital and then discharged in that same year, your odds of being readmitted to the hospital are 62% higher than everybody else's who was not food insecure, just based on that correlation. If you were having a hard time reading the stuff we sent home with you, not that you can't read, but really comprehending the things we give you when you come to the clinic and you leave with that pamphlet that we send you, about your hernia repair or your bypass surgery or your medication plan, you have a hard time reading that material and understanding it well. 45% increased risk of readmission to the hospital if you were hospitalized in the previous year. Bacterial pneumonia is a, is a diagnosis, and there are several we'll get to in a second, diabetes is the second one, that CMS says thou shalt never be hospitalized for diabetes. Bacterial pneumonia, urinary tract infection, a couple other things because these are things that can absolutely be taken care of as an outpatient at home, right? Diagnosed as an outpatient in someone's office or a clinic, prescribed medications for and treated as an outpatient. So these are never events as far as CMS is concerned. However, if you are food, food insecure, you have 2.68 times the risk of being <coughs> admitted to the hospital for bacterial pneumonia. Remember, it's never event as far as CMS. We actually don't get paid as much if we admit you with that, that diagnosis as a hospital because CMS says that should never, ever happen in UVA. ACS stands for ambulatory care sensitive admission. Right? So these are things that should be treated as an ambulatory care outpatient, go to the doctor's office, encounter. Diabetes is that one, one of those major diagnoses, which is, of course, a, a huge problem for our country. Once. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, right? They are the ones who underwrite them, write the policies, and do the contracting, more importantly. Um, so if you have a hard time reading the materials and understanding them, 2.236 times the risk of being admitted to the hospital, and the upper range of our data says it may be as 10 times as likely a risk because you have a hard time understanding the materials. Now, these things are sent home to you in your own language. You tell us what language it is. We print it out in your language. But Sanskrit, it comes home in Sanskrit. So it isn't a question, though, I can't read at all, maybe. It's I don't understand this stuff. 
right? So we're doing a bad job as doctors and nurses and therapists saying, this is what this means, because it's in doctor speak. If you're food insecure and you have heart failure, you have an eight-fold risk of being admitted at all. And again, heart failure is on that never admit to the hospital list as far as CMS is concerned. Eight-fold increased risk because you have a hard time accessing food. Now, you can say that's because people who live closer at poverty have a hard time accessing food, and therefore they can't take care of medication, et cetera. That's probably true. But this individual risk factor by itself, being food insecure in that same time period, has one of the highest and maybe 27 times the risk of being admitted for heart failure than everybody else. So all my great medications I can prescribe to you, all the therapies I can do, I can fix your valve surgically, or actually Tom can fix your valve surgically. Doesn't matter a hill of beans if you're also food insecure. And I began our talk saying that we, we have focused all of our work, us in the white coats, on the valve surgery part of this and the medication prescription part of this process. We're missing the boat, right? maybe even entirely. And the maps I showed you, and we, I don't want to go through all these anymore, but you get the point. The maps I showed you showed that France would and does provide access to food. France actually passed a law not too long ago that restaurants may not throw away food. Right? The old food, the uneaten food, they, they're not allowed to throw it away. They have to give it to someone to be eaten. Because there are homeless people in France. Let's not be utopian about the French. Right? They've got their own sets of issues. But they can't throw away food at the central government level, they made that a policy. Thou shalt not throw away perfectly good food, which we do by the gazillions of tons in this country every year. So I showed you all these data from UVA patients to tell you that the social determinants of health that I've worked my way through talking about are not just abstractions. They're not just long speak. Right? These are real, live people who live and breathe and work among us, all of us. It turns out several of whom will live and breathe and work at UV Hospital themselves. When we first began to do this work, we discovered an employee who was living in her car with her, with her child because she was one of the ones who answered, I don't feel safe at home in the affirmative on the survey because her spouse, actually her boyfriend, was beating her and, th- and the child. So she was living in her car coming to work 40 hours a week on time like we would hope that she would do as a good employee, punching in, punching out, and she would shower in the locker room, do her job beautifully, and then go live in the car. Real people, real neighbors of our own. And so I would submit to you, and Dana's going to give you, I think, much more granular level information about what's happening here in Charlottesville, among other, other things. But we have to redirect our healthcare system dramatically dramatically if we're going to overcome these kinds of risks that are based not on how much medication I prescribe or how good an operation I do, all of which are important things, but if I can understand the stuff I sent home to you with you from the clinic visit, or if you can actually access and afford fresh fruits and vegetables. So I will stop there, let Dana take over. Um, I'm going to go where she is, and that hopefully we'll have time at the end and we'll have, we'll have some questions. Okay. Thank you for your attention.
slides roll fast. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm the lawyer on the team. See, they've even got me mic'd louder. Um, I decided today to concentrate on Charlottesville because I've just, and I'll tell you, remind me to tell you my really good news at the end because I'm going to go through some pretty bad news for a while. Um, and I have no slide on my good news, so I'll depend on you to remind me. Um, but I've just finished an article that is about Charlottesville and our health disparities here. Um, and what I try to do in that article is connect up the history of where we have been with where we are today health-wise. Um, and the picture's very telling. So we are a city, as you know, that has a real foodie tradition, right? We have wonderful, wonderful restaurants that open here almost every week. <coughs> And yet, as you have heard, we have food insecurity here that is higher than many parts in the country and many parts in the state. In fact, 18% of Charlottesville residents are food insecure. You heard that when uh, Dr. Williams defined what that is. Um, and that is as compared to 12% in the state of Virginia. Right. So we're bringing this home, not just um, because we're here for the reunion, but we're bringing it home because I actually think there are some things we can advocate to do here. Our hospital system is world class, but we also have the kind of infant mortality rate that is, in fact, unsupportable. When you do a three-year average, two and a half times more likely a black woman will lose her baby in Charlottesville in the first year of life than a white woman will. And the sad thing is that we can control for education and we control for income, we can control for socioeconomic status, and that remains true. Now, I won't bore you with these slides. I can do them for every major disease source. I could do them for maternal mortality also. You can't hear me? A little bit louder? Okay, yes. <laughs> Happily. I'm holding my hands back here trying to stay calm. Right. Thank you. All right. Um, yeah, so I would turn me down because I'm going to take her at a word. I'm going to talk a little louder. <laughs> um, so you can do that for maternal mortality also. Three and a half times more frequently, a black woman will die in childbirth in Charlottesville and Albemarle County than a white woman will. And that changes year to year, of course. Last year, actually, Two years ago, the last year, which we have data for, if you go into the Virginia Department of Health website, you'll see that the differential for infant mortality by race in Charlottesville was 11 times. Now, that's a really big number. Of course, the N was very small. You know what I mean by the N was very small? We didn't have a lot of births that year, but I mean, really, it's still unsupportable. The N is very small for Hispanic, and we're still two to two and a half times greater for Hispanic Latinx families to lose their baby in the first year of life than whites here in Charlottesville, right? Charlottesville, Albemarle, I will say, right? Um, I haven't done the data yet for the surrounding counties. I, I, it, my bio doesn't tell you I got here about a year and a half ago now, two years, and so I'm just getting started collecting the local data, right? It's very readily available. It's just that you've got to package it. So this is the law school where I, where I teach. And we are a 
fabulous law school. I'm not just saying that because I teach there. I came back here after going here. I've been gone for a lot of years. I wish you hadn't said it, but a lot of years. And I came back because we have an extraordinary program here. I'm, I'm thrilled to work for an extraordinary dean and an extraordinary president. This is the right time to be in Charlottesville for these issues. But if you look at my next slide, the fact is that here in Charlottesville, if you're a white kid, you have half the likelihood of getting arrested uh, of a black kid, and, and, and I'm talking about drug offenses, right? We're not talking about things that people do disparately. I have another slide I'm not showing you because I don't have it for Charlottesville. But over the course of the time period, the 10-year time period from 2007 to 2017, in the United States overall, I don't have a slide for this, but it bears the Charlottesville data out also. Blacks and whites use marijuana at almost exactly the same rate year in and year out, use marijuana at almost exactly the same rate. How do you think their arrests for illegal use of marijuana compare? Over 10 times, vastly different, right? And that's just one drug, one example, right? Our social mobility, that's all right, I can, I can roll with it, but you've skipped two slides, I just want to note, note that, right? You don't want any more bad news, right? <laughs> so this is not just a racial issue. It is a racial issue, and I'm very concerned about the racial issue. That's why I talked about infant mortality after controlling for socioeconomic status, but it's also, my God. Okay, one more, just one more. Stay there. <laughs> so I just want to talk about social mobility for a second. Because in Charlottesville, Virginia, a lot of social mobility has to do with educational disparities. Um, the data tells us that of the worst black-white gaps in educational achievement, Charlottesville ranks in the top 20 school districts in the country. Right? Yeah, that's bad. Right. And the thing that, the good news is coming at the end, but the thing that I'd really like to emphasize is that we also are the home of the flagship premier public university in the nation. Right? And so my good news has to do with connecting those facts together, right? to making our incredibly rich public resources a part of the solution. Social mobility in Charlottesville for poor people, black, white, Latinx, whatever color, bottom 25 in the country social mobility wise. Right? So can you get up from the bottom in Charlottesville? It's very, very hard. A lot of that has to do with <laughs> affordable housing in Charlottesville, right? So if you've read the most recent, there was a 2018 report on affordable housing and needs assessment in Charlottesville. We are 3,300 units behind if we are to affordably house everyone so that they're spending 30% or less of their income on housing. That's a lot of units for a city our size, right? So you could say we have a housing affordability crisis. So why does all of this matter to healthcare? Well, Dr. Williams, I'm going to call you Mike because we have been on each other's schedule for so long. Uh, we present a lot together, um, and I don't like following him any more than he likes following me. But if you remember the story Sully from that movie, right? So this is the airplane. I grew up in New York City. This is the Hudson River in January. You don't want to be in the Hudson River. Right? This plane, it's not conducive to life. But I show this slide in order to explain why I gave you all of that data 
in the beginning of my presentation. These are the 155 souls that left that plane looking for rescue in January in the Hudson River. Can you tell anything about them if I tell you they are in two separate groups? There are two separate groups of passengers waiting for rescue on that plane. Can you see what I'm talking about? First class, coach. All right, what's the difference? What's the difference? Yeah, well, there's lots more of the common people. They're more common, right? That's for sure. What other differences do you see? Exactly. If you're in first class, you've got a raft, right? You've got a raft, you've got a life jacket, you've got a package of rations that'll keep you from eating your neighbor for a longer time, right? You've probably got flares. And your life chances are just better if you're in first class and in the Hudson River than if you are in coach standing on the wing of a sinking plane, right? So what I want you to take from this picture is that place matters. Place matters to your life chances. And that's true on the Hudson. It's true in Charlottesville as well. This is the slide that tells you the data behind what both Mike and I have been talking about. How influential the social determinants of health are estimated to be on your health outcomes, right? Why? Because place matters. So, oh, go back, right, thank you. So, the real, <laughs> the real important thing to see is that big, dark blue slice on the pie chart. Right. So what Mike said earlier, genes and biology, about 10% of that will determine your health outcomes. Have you ever heard that term that says, you know more about my life chances if you know my zip code than my genetic code? This is why, right? So health behaviors together with socioeconomic factors, 70% of the influence on your health outcomes. And I would contend that even your health behaviors have much more to do with your social environment, right? Whether you are safe in your neighborhood, you have lights, right? I just left Colorado, and the neighborhoods that are quote-unquote gentrifying there have dog parks before they have recreation parks for children, right? So those kinds of changes in your environment will determine what your life chances are. Now let's talk about Charlottesville. I'm gonna do it very quickly historically. How many of you have ever heard of Sanborn maps? Sanborn maps, new discovery for me. Sanborn was a fire insurance company. All over the United States, they mapped neighborhoods and did so also noting the materials that buildings were built with where water mains and pipes were located, they were, for fire insurance purposes, maps that give you a lot of data about the environment that could affect someone's health, right? So imagine you're living in Charlottesville. This is a 1920 Sanborn map. I've located Union Station, where I came into just in time to come here today, right? Um, 
And right around Union Station, that red box, right, we're going to watch Charlottesville's downtown neighborhood grow. Next slide. So I showed you the 1907, I said 1920, I'm sorry, the 1907 Sanborn map of Charlottesville. Fast forward to 1912, and the Charlottesville City Council passes a segregation ordinance. Now, the reason this is important is because if you look at the oral history, and I got a chance to do some of this. I'm a lawyer, so I don't usually do this historic research. It was fascinating to me. If you look at the oral history of Charlottesville, it wasn't until 1912 when this ordinance was passed that we had serious segregation. Right? So in order for us to separate people by race, we had to pass a law which made it a crime to sell a house to a person of another race than the person who lived next door. Right? So we have to structure racial segregation in Charlottesville by law starting in 1912. Next slide. This now is the 1920 map. Right? And what I've done is continued to show the red circle of Charlottesville's Union Station right in the middle. And now the circle around Union Station is where the black population becomes concentrated in Charlottesville. Now, if you're really interested, the paper is long, but you can go read the paper and you can see that one of the things the Sanborn map will tell us with all these colors is where the industrial parts of Charlottesville and the commercial parts of Charlottesville were coming into being, why the neighborhood that is circled in black remains the black neighborhood has lots to do with what grew up around it, right? Next slide. And I do this comparing two historically different demographic neighborhoods, Woolen Mills and the Star Hill neighborhood around Union Station. Woolen Mills is a traditionally black, excuse me, traditionally white neighborhood. And the Union Station neighborhood is traditionally black. Again, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but the reason I do this in the article is to show you where water is distributed. Right? So on the right is the Rivanna River for recreation, open space, and by 1930, McIntyre Park. Right? These are things that are important, built environment, things that are important for health. I'm sorry, which map? This one. My right, your left, sorry. Um, and on my left, your right, is the Union Station area that grew up to be black. So I was looking at recreation spaces, and I was looking at access to water, and I was looking at access to sewer, right? Social determinants of health, right? And you can't see it very clearly here, but on the Woolen Mills historically white working class neighborhood, right? There are water main pipes interspersed all through the residential neighborhood, right? Because they got city water by 1920. And you won't find that in the more densely populated Union Station neighborhood in the same year. And these are not exactly comparable from a socioeconomic status. 
This area called Star Hill is slightly higher income blacks than Woolen Mills, which was the very working class laboring neighborhood in Charlottesville. But the ages of the neighborhoods are quite Not at this point. These maps are both 1920. So it had been there for longer. Is that what you're saying? I actually don't think that's right. right? I actually don't think that's right for two reasons. One, by the time we get to Reconstruction in Charlottesville, there are 5,000 African Americans, and they're all living right in the downtown area. Right? Um, Woolen Mills is a uh, Civil War industrial manufacturing area, right? And it came up after the Civil War, also during Reconstruction. So I think they're about the same age. I don't think one is more established than the other, age-wise. Other thoughts why these might be differently resourced? Other than race, because that's my argument. My argument is race. Okay, so next slide. This is 2018. And here's my point. Union Station, if you look at the concentration of African Americans in the Charlottesville, Albemarle (coughs) County, is still the segregated African American working class neighborhood in Charlottesville. Now, there are Sanborn maps from 1907, 1920, all the way to 1955, but there are also lots of other maps that confirm that the way that segregation operates so that place matters for health outcomes was not just by the city council's ordinance, which actually became illegal in 1940-something. I can't remember exactly what, but sometime in the 40s was replaced by zoning ordinances and restrictive racial covenants, but we legally kept races segregated in Charlottesville from 1910, and while we don't have laws to do that today, this past is not past, to quote Faulkner, right? The past is never past. Next slide. So how does that end up manifesting Keep the plane in mind, right? Keep the plane in mind. How does that end up manifesting with respect to the social determinants of health? Well, median household income. For African Americans, this is a a slide that just shows data from 1990 to 2000. Around 14, lagging for blacks, highest for whites, and that's no accident. Right? That's not because some people work harder than other people or are more deserving than other people or are better educated than other people. It is my contention that this is structural and historically reinforced. Next slide. So the unemployment rate will be highest for African Americans in Charlottesville, lowest for whites. Next slide. Graduation rate. If you're not familiar, the New York Times ran a very depressing story. Oh, I'd say about now seven months ago, which said that in Charlottesville, only 50% of African Americans are reading at grade level in the Charlottesville public school system. 
right? So that's the achievement gap, one more. So the big elephant in the room is, what's that got to do with healthcare, right? What has that got to do with health outcomes? And maybe even a bigger elephant in the room is what should health providers have to do with these problems? These are social problems, and I can't possibly be saying that I want health providers, I don't want Mike and Thomas, my husband, to fix poverty, right? They didn't go to law school, excuse me, they didn't go to medical school to fix poverty. But here is what I am saying. That if we look at that pie chart and take it seriously, that the social determinants of health are actually what are going to make us healthy, then in order to achieve the objective of a healthy population, of healthy patients, of good health outcomes, health providers should become concerned with, involved with the social determinants of health. That's the takeaway. How would that look? I'm going to suggest four different ways. And I decided, since you were kind enough to choose us over Katie Couric, <laughs> I'm going to do it in the most provocative way I possibly can. Like, this is my law school class. You know, I teach classes. Huh? Yeah, right. Exactly. So improving access to health care, I think that we would all agree that more insurance would get us more health care. I don't know what your political stripes are. It doesn't matter to me. More hospitals in rural areas would get more health care out to those rural areas. We could agree. But just to be provocative, let me suggest that there are some other things that would get access to health care. This is the rotunda and the lawn. It's an 1800, circa 1800 print. Next slide. And one of the things that I'm suggesting will get more health care is contending with our history here in Charlottesville. Right? Contending with the fact that one of the reasons people do not come to access health care here at the University of Virginia is because we haven't contended with the history. Now, this is slave history, but next you see that we recently, only recently recognized that the nurses we call hidden nurses that were trained at the University of Virginia and could not graduate until April 2019, right, are people who treated Charlottesville residents who have a recent memory of segregation in Charlottesville. Next slide. In fact, this is the hospital ward that I would have been born in if I had been born here in Charlottesville. It's in the basement of the hospital. And I'm old enough to have been born there, but young enough to remember that. And so, no, no, no. That's the basement of the hospital. The Barringer was only white. And let me say one other thing. But in the basement of the Barringer Wing. Is that what it is? Okay, thanks. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm going to try this. I actually couldn't confirm this, so I didn't put it in the, I didn't put it in the article. Um, this is the Negro Ward, and it's next to the Veterinary Ward. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, if you want to read the article, it's about dehumanization. Right? It's about taking a class of people and acting as though they're not human. And then being surprised that their outcomes are going to be different over time, right? 
But hospitals can make a huge difference. Let me take the pressure off of Charlottesville for a second. Hospitals can, number two, fully use their leverage as anchor institutions, I contend, and make a huge difference in the social determinants of health. Now, this is what I use when I go to national conferences and talk to the American Hospital Association. Look at the number of people who are admitted in hospitals every year, 36, 37 million people. That's a lot of touches, and lots of those people have high needs. If we change the way that we think of healthcare delivery to make it more comprehensive, to make it more reckon, make it reckon with the fact that the social determinants are really what make health people healthy, then we'll use the money that hospitals earn differently, right? 73.92 million medical in, Medicaid enrollees, the neediest members of our population, enter hospitals. No other institution in American society touches that many people in need. If we change the way we deliver health care and use some of this money in order to address the social determinants of health, hospitals could more fully address what I contend are a comprehensive need for public health changes. So their potential influence is great. Next slide. And one of the things that we already see UVA doing to leverage that influence is to begin to screen for those social needs. How did Mike get his data? He didn't just ask temperature, weight, and height. He asked about what you had to eat. Do you have a place to live? Are you feeling safe? That's how he discovered the person who was living in their car. That should be standard of care. And what we're seeing now is that Charlottesville is blessed, I would say, to have members of its medical staff like Mike and others who are beginning to think of healthcare more broadly, right? That they have to ask these questions. This slide shows that some of the best, and I would count us among them, University hospitals in the country are those that are beginning to consider screening for social needs every bit as important as screening for health indicators. This question of how to use a hospital's influence. Hospitals, I think, after screening and referring, should look at the next step, and that is becoming a collaborative partner to be the hub of services for populations that include the social determinants of health. Now, that's the next step. And we're not there yet, but without the first step, screening and referral, we wouldn't be there. We wouldn't ever get there, rather. So these are two diagrams, well, let me now, um, these are two diagrams that talk about the fact that healthcare or public health can be the center of not only healthcare itself, but of nutrition, of job training, of home healthcare, of affordable housing. How does that look? Here's an example. And I could do a lot of examples. This is just one. In Louisiana, there's a program called Permanent Supportive Housing. I choose housing because the data shows us that housing first is one of the most important interventions one can make in the social determinants of health to have an important impact on health outcomes. In other words, the data shows us that when people are housed, they can regularly access health care, they can comply with their health treatment reg regimens, 
and that stability improves their health outcomes very quickly, right? Housing and food are the two interventions that you can most directly see the data have an impact on, right? So I picked the Permanent Supportive Housing Program where the Louisiana Department of Health is collaborating with the Louisiana Public Housing Department to provide housing for low and moderate income families, right? Not just homeless populations, which I think are very important, but remember how, how high our, our affordable housing problem here is in Charlottesville, right? So we've got to aim at not only homelessness, but also those who are house burdened. And if we do something like this, the preliminary data tells us, go back one, that we will reduce hospital admissions by 25%. Reduce Medicaid costs by 25%. And for this program, which is serving over 2,000 people in Louisiana right now, 95% of them remained housed one year later. Right? So these are ways that we can see healthcare more comprehensively, even beyond the screen and refer, which is a start. We can see hospitals begin to collaborate with social service organizations. No, you don't have to solve poverty. I'm not trying to turn doctors into social workers. What I am trying to say is that the era of siloed healthcare needs to be over if we're gonna make a dent in the kinds of data that I was talking about earlier. A third option is to integrate healthcare with non-health services. So I'll hurry up and give you my favorite one of these in a moment, but let me just say that in a clinical setting, if I can also offer a social worker, behavioral health, oral health, and, next slide, a lawyer. Surprised you with that one, didn't I? <laughs> Medical legal partnerships are one of the best ways to address social determinants of health in the clinical setting. Why? The paradigm is a kid with asthma, right? If you have asthma, Mike can give them all the albuterol that you want, but you send them home to a moldy apartment that's pest infested with lead paint, you can't compete, right? And mice, right, exactly. Your albuterol won't, mice, your albuterol won't be able to help that patient in the face of those social determinants, right? Last one. So health and all policies. Remember Mike was showing you the maps of all the policies that are different around the country? If we looked at the health impact of all policies, we would have the kind of impact that this group, the Medical Committee for Civil Rights, had in 1960, right? Now, I talked to medical school audiences, and they're horrified. I want them to come down to Capitol Hill. I give them the talk about how my experience working on Capitol Hill, I privilege them. I try to make them feel real. I'll get two of them out of 150, a class of 150, to take me seriously. But those two can make a difference, right? Because the Medical Committee of Civil Rights was key in passing Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Right? And that's why, even though hospitals were the most segregated, other than churches in the United States of America, the most segregated institutions in America, you never saw this scene to desegregate hospitals. We didn't need hoses. Next. We didn't need dogs. We didn't need marches. Now, I'm not saying hospitals were willing converts. But the fact that we had a quiet revolution 
moving from segregation to desegregation should inspire hospitals and healthcare providers to take note of the emergency we have in our country today. Not only with racial relations, but income disparities, health disparities, and the changes that we can make. Remember Mike said we don't usually think of ourselves the way France does as interconnected? We could have a second quiet revolution led by the healthcare industry, in my view, to change those disparities that we've both been talking about, to change health inequity, and probably to change more. Why? As I said, I left Colorado a year and a half ago where the aspen is the state tree. I'm a skier, so I'm always up in the mountains either. Well, I used to be a mountain biker until I fell and broke my wrist, and now I'm too old to be a mountain biker anymore. So, but this is the scene that I used to love, and one of the reasons I bring it to you today is not just because it's beautiful, but because trees in aspen stands are not individual trees. They're connected beneath the ground as a single organism. And my suggestion about changing our attitude about healthcare and how it's delivered recognizes that we, in fact, are all connected. And I think if we do that, the data that I've showed you in Charlottesville, if you come back for your next reunion, we'll be able to show that we've moved the needle in the right direction. So thanks for listening. Thank you so much for your talks. I really enjoyed them. Um, I'm a very recent nurse manager at, U, at UVA um, in one of the primary care clinics that serves mainly underserved populations. And um, so that's where my experience is coming from and also having been a public health nurse. Um, sorry, I'm a little nervous talking. But um, I just feel like the public health sector needs to be very much involved in this. And the hospital system, it is responding to its own financial and policy incentives. I mean, look at the huge tower expansion that's being built right now. And not one single inch of that expansion is going to primary care. Um, even though my clinic was so tight and had so many patients, and we could have brought in hundreds of more patients if we had had the capacity, but we didn't. So um, I, just, you know, I just wonder about this sort of chain of incentives to fund public health, to pay public health personnel um, at, at market rate so that they're not all flooding over, you know, going to the hospitals, um, and also the incentive structures that make hospitals want to keep expanding acute beds and ICU beds and surgical suites as opposed to expanding ambulatory care where they really need to. Thank you. You go first. Yeah, I'll go first. Thank you for that. So maybe I shouldn't tell you what my other jobs are, but um, I am also Associate Chief Medical Officer for the health system um, for clinical integration, which is, I think, germane to your question. You're not wrong. I'd like to tell you that she's wrong. Um, she's not wrong. Uh, the reality is that the incentives, as you describe, and I alluded to this a bit in my, in my remarks, are 
180 degrees away from what you're talking about. And so our challenge is to build both at the same time, um, to stay financially solvent so that we can do this high-end stuff. Our, our painful reality is that um, America has to catch up to health outcomes around the world, and that's going to require, in addition to much better infrastructure and much better investment in public health and primary care, it's also going to require that new tower. Um, so it, we have to build in parallel, and, and I'm, I keep, I'm beginning to write about this now in academic circles because I don't think anyone's really talked about the fact that we're going to have to double down our spending in at least two fronts. One you talked about in public health and primary care, but also the most effective way to reduce type 2 diabetes so far that's most durable is weight loss surgery, which is crazy but true stories. Um, that's expensive stuff, right? My colleagues and I do that operation, and it, it works, but it's crazy expensive. Much better to not ever be obese and require and develop type 2 diabetes, but we have so many people who already are type 2 diabetics that we have to help them achieve a level of health with expensive adjuncts, at the same time preventing the next generation, which we're actually too late for that. We have to now mitigate the current generations um, heading in that same direction. So you're not wrong. Uh, part of why the work that Dan and I do, and we, we're, we work together in a lot of different <laughs> domains, to help the, the health system understand what you just said um, and to invest differently is happening in sort of this arm. And my other arm is administrative leader of the hospital. We're having to tackle this real-world problem we have today. So I, I don't have a good answer for you, but you're not wrong. I, I agree. So I was thinking about how we work together. He's on the inside, and he's... Um, you know, trying to change things from within. And I'm the agitator from the outside, so I'll say you're not only wrong, but, like, bravo. Yes, you're exactly right. We have a question. Let me just say, can I just say one other thing to her? Um, one of the things we have to do is change the dichotomy between health care and public health. Right? We have to stop seeing these as two separate enterprises, and competing enterprises, right, for the type of resources that you're describing, right? Um, some of that has to do with education, right? Our educational curriculum around the country does not include public health as part of medical education. We're still teaching people to do healthcare on a retail basis, not on a population basis, right? Part of it is pay structure. Part of it is financial incentives. Part of it is political will, right? The populations that are suffering, we have to talk about as not politically powerful, suffer, uh, powerful populations. However, on the bright side, one of the reasons I'm so glad to be here at the University of Virginia, it feels to me, honestly, a civil rights lawyer, like being in Selma again. Like, we are at ground zero. I came here and I tell people, I actually live in DC, I come here every day because like I am going to change the world because all eyes are on Charlottesville. August 11th, 12th was horrible. We lost lives on that day, but we also have the attention of the nation for changing the way we do things, like looking at health outcomes on a population basis as everyone's problem, right? So I think we have a lot of potential here. And our good news, my good news, my good news, is that the Equity Institute got funded, right? Um, <laughs> it's not an institute yet. We're the Equity Institute Project. So in three years, we're going to 
hopefully, and this is why I think being at UVA is so important, take the public and put it back in public education, right? UVA is perfectly situated to help solve these big public problems like you've just described. All right, so. we've got time for one more question. And uh, because answer. there's another group waiting to come in. This was, I, I had a question uh, pertains to the law school. Um, 50 years ago, I was there. Hardy Dillard was at still the law alive school? at law school. Graduated. Uh, I was also involved in the startup of legal aid yes. at the law school, programs of the Poverty Law Center, Legal Services Corporation of Virginia. Very enthusiastic, lots of bright young lawyers thinking that things could be done legally, rule of law, to change poverty in this country. Yeah. We were a little overly ambitious, I think. Never. We set back starting with Ronald Reagan in 1980, uh, and so on. But the law school maintained some degree of, of interest, encouraging students to be part of the legal aid program. Agreed. One of the issues that, that we had, we, we sold ourselves as providing access to justice. Yes. Without definition. I mean, just matching up a, a client uh, with a lawyer and that you, was not, you know, it was just a number. We, all our numbers to Congress and whatever, all numbers and numbers and numbers. Uh, about late 1980s, this outcome measurements concept started to infiltrate into the legal services program. It became important not just to have a lawyer dealing with a client, dealing with a problem, but what impact uh -huh. did the lawyer could the lawyer bring through advocacy, legal advocacy, to that client? Now we were we were dealing with this new kind of goal against the backdrop of the kinds of things legal aid programs could do, like impact litigation, class actions were being restricted by the government. Yes, sir. Totally. Legislative advocacy on, on behalf of poor people yeah. couldn't do that anymore. Immigration can't do it. And I know you're Lobby very familiar with all yeah. that. Elaine Jones was in my class. Uh, you yeah. may know, ah. know her. Uh, how do you get enthusiastic lawyers now, young people, in particular, this is a very interesting nexus here to connect it into healthcare advocacy yeah. within the law school. Yeah, I'm going to give you the short answer and then you and I should talk offline. I think the short answer is medical legal partnerships that are cause lawyering, right? Not just going into clinics that are low in, where low-income patients are and solving what are important domestic violence problems like the one he described, the albuterol problem. But I'd like to sue, if you don't mind, an entire public housing network. I'd like to bring action against a city that doesn't construct parks. In. And the thing that's really interesting is I don't, even, I don't really have to go to court. Right? I've done a little bit of this, for example, in Denver, which is one of the, there's a zip code that's the worst zip code in the country for environmental injustice, two interstate highways, um, a Superfund site, all of the cannabis outlets you could possibly want on the way to school for fourth graders. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's not much of that going on. Okay, but all we had to do was write a letter on the letterhead. Basically, Sierra Club, the University of Colorado, and a law firm, right? Dear Department of Trans Transportation, we're about to sue you for Title VI civil rights, right? So that kind of population caused lawyering on a health basis is the answer, I think, and then we can talk more offline. Thank you.